you've got a Bible this morning, you can open it to Romans chapter 1. We're in Romans chapter 1. Today, we are diving into a text that shows us the working out of what we kind of began last week in Romans 1. Of We talked about God's wrath being revealed against our sin. And today, uh, we see due to our sinfulness, specifically our idolatry and our rejecting, and as we call it, and replacing God in our hearts, man has been given over to a host of sins, and God's judgment is revealed in our present day, even in our, in our pursuit of sin instead of in our pursuit of holiness. And today is really about how sinful you and I are, and mankind in general, apart from the grace of God. It's not really about how sinful some particular people are, uh, but how sinful all people are. Not a certain kind of sinner, but the fact that all of us are sinners. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul this morning name some very specific sins that manifest themselves among fallen humanity. Um, Paul is not super concerned about being politically correct this morning. He is just going to talk plainly to us. It's a very plain spoken text. And I want to be clear. Um, as we get into this text this morning, Paul's point today is that mankind in general is sinful, specifically Gentiles. As we talked last week, how in chapter 1 he's mainly addressing Gentiles, speaking to everybody, but pointing out the sins of the Gentiles. And then he gets over in chapter 2, he starts more specifically talking to the Jewish people in that day uh, and their sins. And in our day, we, we, we talk about how whether you're moral or whether you're immoral, we all, uh, no matter what sort of uh, pursuit you have where, you have where you're pursuing to be moral before God or pursuing to live life however you want to. We all need Jesus. None of us are moral enough to meet God's standards. And we are all prone, Romans 1 is going to teach us, to idolatry, to, to create other gods for ourselves in our hearts. And our idolatry leads to a cycle of sin that can only be broken by the gospel. Only the good news of Jesus can break this sin cycle. That's why we're doing who's your one. That's why we're asking you uh, to be praying about who God would place on your heart for you to reach with the gospel, for you to list the people in your life um, who are far from God that you're going to be praying for. And that, that one person that you're praying that God would allow you to lead to Christ this year because the only way that people get reconciled to God is through believing the good news of Jesus. Now, last week, in verses 18 through 23 of Romans 1, we saw that the wrath of God, as Paul says, is revealed from heaven against our sin. And then man naturally suppresses the truth about God. We saw that. And we learned that we are without excuse before God. None of us can point the finger at God and say, well, God, I didn't know enough. We, we all know enough to be held accountable before God. And even though God has made himself known through creation in some ways, we have rejected God in our hearts, and we've replaced him and worshipped other things, including ourselves. And the core sin, Romans 1 teaches us, is idolatry. It's rebellion against the true God and replacing him in our hearts. And the rejection of the true God as God and giving our hearts over to other things. In particular, especially we see this in our culture, ourselves, the self-life, we might call it. And this leads to God's judgment. It leads to us spinning off into other sins, and the only cure is the gospel. So look with me at Romans chapter 1. The text we're reading this morning, I'll be honest with you, is probably the most um, controversial text in Western civilization today in many ways. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24, we're going to read through verse 32. Therefore, therefore, in light of right, our idolatry and our 
rejecting and replacing God, God gave them, God gave us, up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, in this passage, what we are seeing is man's idolatrous rebellion against God on full display and how God gives sinful humanity over to their sin as part of his judgment against their sin. Man's continued rebellion and pursuit of sin is a part of God's judgment against our sinful idolatry. And what we see here is how mankind rebels against God and the root of rebellious idolatry in our hearts brings forth the fruit of various sins, even sins that are contrary, as Paul says, to the very nature of how God designed his creation to work. And the text shows us just how bad we all need Jesus. That's the point. Man, when you read this text, you don't walk away going, if you look at it in context, well, Paul's really pointing out and picking on one particular group of sinners. Are you kidding me? If you read this whole passage, you're on the list. We all are at some point in the passage. He is picking on all of us and for our sin. And so, Four things this morning that I want us to see about man's rebellious idolatry that we need to see and understand this morning as we look to God's grace. Number one, this text shows us humanity shares a core problem. Humanity shares a core problem. Humanity, you and I, our core problem is on display in both texts. If you go back up to verse 23, where Paul says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Then down in verse 25, he says they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We see that our chief problem is that we have, as I've already said, rebelled against God and chosen to worship other things. That is a problem that everybody on the planet shares. And last week, we said that man has, we called it rejected and replaced God in our hearts. In other words, God should be supreme in our hearts. We should prize him and adore him above all things. But due to our fallen nature, we all choose to displace God in our hearts and we worship other things, including ourselves and humanity. And typically, that's what we see as some form of self-worship. And notice in verse 23, man exchanges the glory of God for images, false gods. And then in verse 25, man exchanges truth for a lie, right? And so idolatry is a real bum deal, okay? We, we get a bad swap. Instead of getting God, we get something less than God. And instead of getting truth, we end up with a lie. And this is the core problem that we all share. The heart of sin is this rebellion and idolatry. It's choosing and refusing to, choosing to 
not glorify God with our heart and life and instead to choose to glorify something or someone else. And in the midst of the text that calls out some sins you may struggle with and some sins that you may not, it's important to realize that the core issue we all share. You might look at some sins in this passage and go, well, I've never struggled with that. Or other sins and go, well, I have struggled in my past with, with that. But, but that there's a core problem that all of these sins spring from, and we all share the core problem, and that's this rebellion against God and this idolatry in our hearts that we need to be saved from. This is the root that all other sin blossoms from. So while you may look at a sin and go, well, I can't relate to that. I've never been tempted with that. You can relate to the core issue, which is idolatry. Our core problem we all share is lack of properly prizing, adoring, worshiping, and obeying God as God. And every single worship on the planet shares, person on the planet shares that worship problem, that, that glory problem. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all that in common. You know, in high school, my, I waited my senior year to play football, and I wasn't very good, okay? I was good enough to play, not good enough to start, right? And there were other guys on our high school football team that were really good. They were good enough. Some of them played college football. And there were other guys on the team, believe it or not, that were worse than me, right? And they weren't even really good enough to play unless we were up like 50 points or something like various degrees. But here's one thing I know and remember about my high school football team. Not a single one of us played in the NFL. You say, really? And do you know why? The reason I didn't play in the NFL is the same reason that those guys that played college football didn't play in the NFL and the same reason that the bench warmers didn't play in the NFL. None of us were good enough. We all shared the same core problem, and it's similar in humanity. We share a core human problem, rebellion against God and idolatry, and we're all sinful idol worshipers apart from grace, and our sinfulness manifests itself in various ways and degrees, but we're all born in need of a new birth, right? None of us are good enough. No matter what you struggle with, the problem is real simple. You need to be born again. That's the, that's the anthem of the Bible, no matter where we're at. Uh, in our life. And so um, you can relate to your lost neighbor in some way, okay? So even if they struggle with things that you don't struggle with or, or pursue sins that you never pursued, you have something in common. We have a common problem. And at the same time, you might be here this morning and you might say, you know what? I feel alone in my battle against sin. You may think you deal with things that no one else does, but, but see, everybody in this room share a common core problem. We're all sinners, and we all need the same gospel. There's not two gospels. There's not three gospels. There's not a gospel for the self-righteous and a gospel for the immoral. We all need the same gospel because we have the same problem, okay? Jesus didn't shed a little bit more blood for some sins than others. He shed his blood for all sins and for all us sinners so that we can be saved and reconciled to God. We share the same problem. Number two, Number two, Paul points out that sexual sins, including homosexuality, are a product of rebellious idolatry. Look at verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, the impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. All sexual sin stems from the root issue of idolatry. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, those sinful desires people have to lust after, to, the impure thoughts, right? However you want to say that. Impure actions, those grow from a heart that does not properly praise and adore God. And when people rebel against God's design and commit sexual acts with someone other than their spouse, right? They dishonor their body. They fail to use their body, is what Paul's saying, in a way that God intended. That's why it dishonors the body. 
God created the body, and even in, in the act of sexual expression, that is to happen between a man, one man and one woman in the context of marriage, in a covenant relationship. And Paul's saying anything outside of that is dishonoring to the body and is, is sinful. And idolatry and sexual sin, Paul is wanting us to see, are contrary to God's very design for our lives. They, they share that. Both idolatry and sexual sin share the same problem. They're contrary to God's design. He designed us to love, worship, and obey him. And he created sex to be had between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Anything else are contrary to God's design. That's Paul's point. And the reason people commit sexual sin, even a believer, if they go and commit a sexual sin, is because God is not being honored as God in the heart. Something or someone else is. Idolatry always precedes immorality. Okay? Idolatry always precedes immorality. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul's going to get, give us a more specific example and illustration. He points out that homosexuality in particular is a sinful rebellion against the creator that stems from an idolatrous heart. Now listen, this is a sensitive issue. I get it. It's an issue for many of us in this room. Have friends or family members or may struggle with same-sex attraction. But we still have to deal with what the text says about this. And this is really the clearest text in all the New Testament, probably the one where this particular sin is talked about the most is right here. There are other places throughout the Bible and in the New Testament, but here Paul goes into a little bit more detail. And it's an important thing to address in our culture today where there's so much confusion about this, debate about this. James Emery White wrote a book called Meet Generation Z. And he notes in that book a United Kingdom study um, by YouGov that noted in their study they found that 49%, this was done over in the UK, that 49% of people ages 18 to 24 in the survey identified as something other than 100% heterosexual. He went on to note that 4% of the entire adult population claims to be homosexual. So there's like a disparity there, right, with, with 18 to 24 versus the other ages. And So in other words, this is a topic that we must deal with. And White says Generation Z... Right? If you were born between 1995 and 2010, uh, you're Generation Z. Right? I'm, like, I'm like on the fringe of Millennial and Gen X. Right? So I'm like, depending on who you ask. And so everybody put us in these categories right, by, by age. And his point is that largely the younger generation is identifying now as more sexually fluid. They don't really want to be pigeonholed. And that's not saying, it's not a broad brush painting with everybody. It's the general polls, general survey. And so our culture, in other words, is moving in a particular direction, and it's in a different direction than Scripture would have us move. And it does that, we see that in various issues in life. And when it comes to any topic, what I say or what you say or what the culture says is not the key for us as believers to understand that topic. And as Christians, we have to hold the Bible up as our authority, right? We have to say, what does God say about this? And good news is God has spoken but we also have to understand that we have to share what God has said in the context of love. And the point of this passage is not hate. And the point of this passage is, but is help. And the point of this passage is not ultimately to hurt, but to heal. And, and so it, it's not to use as a weapon to beat somebody over the head with any more than anywhere else in the Bible is. It's used to, to help us understand our sinfulness and our need for Christ. And once again, we see in the passage that God gave them up. You see it three times in this passage. And the point is, if we want sin and not God, God will allow us to have sin and not Him. He will give us over to that. And here it's to, he says, dishonorable passions. 
The word dishonorable there means shameful, disgraceful lust and desires. And Paul is noting that these desires and lust are contrary to the will of God. They are sinful. And he references, in this particularly, he illustrates with both lesbianism and homosexuality. Now notice the word there, exchange. Just as in idolatry, man exchanges, man exchanges God's glory for images and truth for a lie, Paul's point is that in homosexuality, we see the exchanging of the natural for that that is contrary to nature. What's Paul getting at? Remember, our root sin is rebellion and idolatry. We all share that one. And Paul is showing that man is rebellious to the point that man even rebels in our sexuality. Here he is showing humanity has even shown rebellion against God's created order by engaging in sexual activity with people that God did not design us to relate to sexually. That's Paul's point. God made man for woman and woman for man, and he made sex to be, take place within a marriage between a man and a woman. And homosexuality is rebellion, and it's contrary to God's creative order. That's Paul's point, in short. And Paul is arguing here in Romans 1 that nature itself reveals that homosexuality is not the will of God, just in the way he has designed humanity to work and to flourish. And the sin, he points out, is among both sexes, both male and female. Women have committed this sin, and men. And Paul is noting that both the acts and the passions or desires are contrary to God's design. Now note that in the text. And his, they're the, uh, contrary to his will and therefore anything contrary to God's will is sinful. And Paul says they receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. What does that mean? Well, in a sense, all sin, this text shows us, is a judgment in itself, right? God gave them over. God gave them over. And it's the same for homosexuality. It carries with it a judgment within itself. Paul also may very well be noting spiritual, emotional, even physical consequences that come with this sin. You know, the Bible says when we commit sexual sin, we sin against our own body. It says every other sin you commit, you commit outside your body. But sexual sin is a sin against your own body. It, it carries with it consequences that are actually foreign th th from some other sin. But all sin, all sin has consequences. It doesn't matter the sin, whether it's a lie or whether it's gossip. Every sin has consequences. And Paul is saying this sin has consequences as well. Now, all of this we go back to is rooted, Paul is showing us, in idolatry, all sin, including this one. Humanity has rebelled against God. We have chosen idols. We've chosen ourselves over God, and therefore when man chooses another God, he chooses to rebel, God gives us over to our sin. The point of this text is not that homosexuals need an extra dose of the gospel. The point is that all of us need the same gospel. But yes, the point is homosexual desires and practices are sinful. Paul refers to homosexual sin in this text as dishonorable, unnatural, and shameless. He's being pretty clear about that. And this is an unpopular view. But we cannot love our homosexual neighbors if we affirm them in their sin. Any more than we can love any other neighbor if we affirm them in what God calls sin. You can't love your neighbor well if you can affirm their immorality before marriage. You can't love your neighbor well or your buddy well if you affirm his adultery or his lying or his gossip. We can't love our neighbor and affirm sin because sin is deadly. All sin is worthy of death. We all The wages of sin, Paul goes on to say in Romans 6.23, is death, right? Physical, spiritual, emotional. The reason humanity lives and then dies is because sin entered the picture. And this is an unpopular view, but we, we have to embrace what God says on this to love people well. Now, we believe that all people are made in God's image. We are more than our sexual desires, so much more. And at the core, we're all image bearers. 
who are fallen and sinful and in need of the gospel. Whether that be heterosexual or homosexual, we are all image bearers of God who at the core need to be reconciled to God. And notice what's not in the text. You will not see Paul ridicule or make fun of this sin, or by the way, any sin. Paul doesn't seem angrier about this sin than other sins. You notice that? Some people in our culture, they seem angrier about this sin than any other sin that's out there. You don't see that from Paul in his tone. He, he's not angrier about this one than he is others. He doesn't even, when you read it, you don't think, well, Paul's angry. No. He's, what is he? He's eager to preach the gospel is his tone in Romans chapter 1. He's anxious to talk about Jesus and how Jesus can save and transform a life. And many people are struggling with same-sex attraction and homosexual desires or or they're in a homosexual lifestyle and they're troubled and they're fearful, they're confused and they're hurting and they need the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to love them and yes, to share the gospel with them, but to speak the truth in love and in the context of love. However, many in our churches today and in the past have been cruel towards homosexuals. Let's just be honest about that. We have at times failed here. And that is ungodly and unchristlike and unacceptable. There, there is no middle ground. We must, we must both tell the truth and do it with love. It, it's not helpful to say truthful things in a hurtful, harmful, angry, or unloving way. And at the same time, it's not loving to affirm what God says is sin. The common objection we hear in our culture today is, well, someone may say, well, I was born this way. My, my friend was, was, says they're born this way. My, my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my, my uncle says they were born this way. However, if you really look into this, even homosexuals don't even agree over that, by the way. It's debated even in that community. Science itself cannot make a definitive statement on that. Scripture aside, let's be clear. We are all born sinners, the Bible tells us. We have something we believe called original sin that we're going to get to in Romans chapter 5. We inherit a sin nature from Adam, our first father. However, we are not born murderers, and we're not born gossips, and we're not born adulterers, and we're not born sexually immoral, and we're not born homosexuals. But that does not mean that some people may not have a higher propensity towards some sins than others. Some people may be more tempted with any sin or with homosexuality given certain circumstances, etc. There, there may be another sinful desire that they don't struggle with that their neighbor does, right? We're all wired differently. The fall has affected all of us in different ways. Let me ask you, do you and your spouse struggle with the exact same temptation? Are there things you struggle with your spouse doesn't? See, some people, due to our fallen nature, may be tempted in areas that others are not. And just because it's harder for someone to resist one temptation over the other, that does not nullify their accountability before God for what God says is his design. It just shows us how bad all of us need Jesus and need to be reconciled to God. I read an article this week from Christopher Juan who noted in the article, he said this, we are all born sinful and what we need is to be born again. And that's really the bottom line. That, that, that's, the, that's the core Christian Bible. We, the Bible says we all need to be born again. And some people look at this passage that we're reading today and they've begun to reinterpret it, right? And devise interpretations that are new, honestly, for the 21st century. And that you'll hear something like this. The argument will go, well, Paul is only speaking here to abusive homosexual relationships. And that's simply not true. You can't get that from a plain reading of this text. 
whether you read it in Greek or read it in English. There is not proof of that there. Paul is showing how the sin itself is contrary to the created order. And a plain reading of the text will not lead you there. Some people say, well, Paul is only speaking to those whose natural desire is, is not for the same sex. So you're doing something unnatural if you pursue a relationship with someone who you don't have a natural desire for. That's not Paul's point either. He's talking about creation in general and the way that God created things to work. Paul is not speaking to what comes natural to the individual, but clearly to what can be seen in nature as natural to God's design for humanity. See, interpretations like these are wrong-headed. They mislead people astray. They abuse the text, and they're hurtful, not helpful. So we have to stray clear and understand a plain reading of what the Bible says. And the Bible is clear, and this text is clear. We all need Jesus. Homosexual, heterosexual, we all need Jesus. Whatever you struggle with, whatever you're tempted with, we all need Jesus. I read in the last few years about the conversion of a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. She is a pastor's wife in North Carolina. But before she was a Christian, she was a tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. She had a very liberal worldview, you'd say, and, and she was also a practicing lesbian. And in her testimony, she recounts how she came to Christ to the faithful gospel witness of a pastor and his wife. He had kindly responded to an angry article that she wrote about the religious right was back in the 90s, and she wanted to research the religious right and research the Bible, not because she believed it, but because she didn't and wanted to kind of write some scathing material about it. And the pastor and his wife opened up their home and served as a resource for her, and a friendship ensued. She began to read the Bible a lot for her research. She went to their house for meals and conversations and to ask questions and to see how Christians interact, and all the while a practicing lesbian in a relationship. She did not believe the Bible. She had no desire to believe the Bible. Within two years of being loved, of hearing the gospel, she believed. Today, she's married to a pastor. She's a mom. She's a tro trophy of grace. And here's the thing. She didn't need another gospel. She just needed the gospel. She notes in her testimony the influence these patient, loving believers had on her, that they didn't condone her sin and they didn't run from her. But they listened to it. They also realized that her biggest problem wasn't her sexuality it was her unbelief. Her, her rebellious, idolatrous heart, that was the core issue. It had expressed itself in a particular way, and at the core, we're all the same. And when she repented of her sin and believed the gospel, her life began to change, and she began to recover and pursue, as we say in the three circles, God's design for her life. And our neighbors, no matter their lifestyle choices and their sin, need us to love them, to be kind to them, generous to them, Show them the same grace we'd want to be shown and to realize the core of their problem is the same as ours, not different. We have more in common than we have different. And we all need the gospel. Listen, you can, someone can flee homosexuality and become a heterosexual and die lost and go to hell. You could say, I'm never going to tell another lie and never tell another lie the rest of your life and die and go to hell. Right? You, can, you can be an immoral person who, who sleeps with a lot of people and say, you know what, I'm never going to do that again and die and go to hell. Change that is not gospel change is not saving change. We're not saved by changing. We're saved by Jesus. And then Jesus changes us. And that's the hope of the gospel this morning. That, that's why we have to address the core issue of unbelief and idolatry. And then God begins to change the human heart from the inside out. The third thing we see in this text is rebellious idolatry leads to a sinfully oriented mind and life. We see that in verses 28 to 32. 
their failure to acknowledge God. The persistence in our rebellion and idolatry leads to this, what Paul calls a debased mind. It's a mind that, as Douglas Moo points out, fails to properly discern and do God's will. Our minds and our lives, apart from God's saving action, are prone to be given over to things that displease God. We, we don't think on the right track. We don't think according to what might please God. We think according to what might please us. And notice the list of sin Paul gets into after this. If you think Paul's point in Romans 1 is to only call out the homosexual, then you are badly mistaken. If verses 26 and 27 missed you, verses 28 through 32 are going to hit you right between the eyes. Me too. We can all look at things on there and say, I've had that in my past. I've had to war against that one. I've had to repent against that one. Might need to confess that one. And we see these sins all through our society and in our lives. Look at them. Some of these characterize you before conversion. You have to battle some of these even today in temptation. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. Listen, we, we've all, we know, chosen to do unrighteous things, things that aren't right. We've done evil. We've, we've coveted things that are not ours. We've desired to have other people's lives and things. Malice means wicked intent. We've all had bad intentions in our actions. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. These sins rip apart the very fabric of society. We envy others for their success or their possessions. You, you may not commit murder, but if in your heart you've hated someone, you've committed the same sin, that's, a sin that commits from the same root, evil, as Jesus taught. In your heart, hatred and murder are alike. Not that they're the same, but they're alike. They both stem from this evil heart. People fight and they deceive and they show wicked, maliciousness means wicked intent aimed towards someone else. Gossip and slanders, he said. Sins of spreading rumors and telling lies about people. Have you ever done that? Spread a rumor? Open your mouth when you shouldn't have? Told a lie about someone because you're mad at them? Maybe embellish something that happened to you to make yourself look like the, the, the victor and not make yourself look like the victim instead of the one that may have, maybe, maybe there's a little truth on both sides? Haters of God? Insolent, violent, right? haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Pride, arrogance may sound like a simple sin, but it stems from a, a sinfully oriented heart and mind, not thinking according to God's design. One of the ways arrogance displays itself is rebellion against God-given authority. This first shows up when we rebel against our parents. I'm willing to bet we all did that at some point. It continues in adulthood with rebelling against other God-given authorities in our life. See, we, we, are, we, nat we, we, we are wired in such a way by our sin. We've been so infected by sin that we naturally rebel against God's design. Listen, our rebellious children in our homes, for those of us who are parents that still have kids in the home, need Jesus just like everyone else we've spoken about today on the list. The same gospel is needed, whether you're 8 or 80. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Paul says. Mankind with a debased mind makes foolish choices, sinful choices, choices that are not wise by God's standards. Douglas Moo, who I quoted earlier, notes that faithless here in this text means, this is his quote, one who refuses to abide by covenants and treaties. Let me ask you, you think we have a problem in our culture with people to refuse to abide by their covenants? Sure we do. We don't keep our promises, and many times this manifests itself in people not taking their marriage covenant seriously. We see in the news our social media and our political discourse just how heartless and ruthless we can be in our society. We see these sins manifest themselves in our lives. 
And Paul's point is look at how sin manifests itself. When people have minds given over to sin and not God, when people pursue idols or self instead of God, a host of things show up in our lives that are rebellious. And he's not giving every sin out there. He's just showing us with this list what a sinful life looks like. See, our society and our families and our lives have been wrecked by these sins. Because sin, sin manifests itself in various ways, not just in the ways we spoke about earlier. And when you refuse to treat God as God in your life and your mind is oriented around things contrary to his will, your life will begin to be oriented around things that are contrary to his will. Look at what he says in verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, there's a natural law that we're sort of hardwired with because we're made in the image of God and God has made some things obvious to us in creation. There's a natural law that tells us that some things are just wrong. You can never hear the Bible preach and just sort of know that murder is wrong. People will debate in our society what murder is, but they don't really debate if it is murder that it's murder, right? They just debate, they're just trying to redefine what murder is. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but the people will know something's wrong and they'll do it anyways, Paul's point. Even if we know it's wrong, we still will embrace what is wrong. See, man has not generally sinned against God because we didn't know better, but because we'd rather have sin than God. Knowing better is not really the difference. There's plenty of things I look back at my life that I knew better and I did, right? And you can say the same thing. That's Paul's point here. But mankind, Paul says, not only does these things that we know are wrong, we also approve of sin in the lives of others. We don't just do, we approve. Listen, Paul's point is this. It's not only sinful to commit a sinful act, it is also sinful to approve of a sinful act. Our culture is rife with the approval of sin. I received a couple of emails just in the last month asking if I'd like our church to be advertised in a paper that advertises primarily to particularly a homosexual clientele. Obviously, the nature being that we would be an affirming church, they would call it. People on both sides of the political aisle in our discourse today will defend people in their party that say and do sinful, horrible things. As long as it was not their party that did it, right? It's always them over there. So they'll approve of something over there. Normal, never approve for somebody on the other side of the aisle. Just in New, in New York, just in the last few weeks, we, we saw a vivid video display of an, a late-term abortion bill that it was approved. And people stand up and cheer and clap about it and celebrate it, right? We are a culture that approves of things that God doesn't approve of. And Paul says, man, that's a mark of the debased mind. There is something in us that will not only sin, but even if we don't do it, we'll approve of it in the life of someone else. And listen, it is unacceptable this morning. Listen, it's unacceptable for a believer to condone what God says is sin. It's unacceptable for a believer to condone abortion. It's unacceptable for a believer to affirm homosexuality is not sin. It is unacceptable for a believer to... Tell their kid it's cool if they play house with their boyfriend or girlfriend so maybe, maybe they can get a picture of what married life will look like. You'd be surprised some of the crazy things we hear about. That is unacceptable for a believer to do these things, to approve of what God would never approve of, whatever the sin may be. It's not just sinful to do, but to approve of sin. And friends, we and our neighbors, Paul is wanting us to see over and over again how bad we need the gospel. We need Jesus. They need Jesus. Jesus is our hope. 
to get our minds and our lives aligned with his will and not contrary. The last point, number four, the consequences for rebellion and idolatry is judgment. Three times in this text, Paul tells us about the judgment that is now. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Abandoning them to their sin. See it three times. Sin is a judgment within itself. One of the worst things that can happen to you or me is for God to let you have what you want if what you want is not first and foremost Him and His will. And that is a judgment of God upon our lives. And God gives us up to our sin. The enslavement to sin in the lives of people. Being stuck in our sin as we persist in it. That's a judgment in itself. And it tells us God does not approve and that there is more judgment to come. Right? If, if I persist in a sinful lifestyle with no desire to get out of it, or sinful behavior, no desire, whatever it may be, no desire to get out of it, no desire to repent, that is a judgment from God that I continue in that, and it should speak to me and tell me there's more judgment to come. Right? Every sin has consequences. That's the way life works, and that's the way sin works. You know, kids struggle to grasp consequences. We're at that stage with our kids. Trying to teach them, when you do this, this happens. If you don't do this, this happens. Trying to teach them consequences. Hopefully, when they get older, we focus less on consequences because they'll grasp that, right? But we have to, when they're little, you have, to, you have to get them to understand that actions lead to reactions and consequences happen when you do things. But even we all, as sinners, struggle with this too. People tend to think there are no consequences. And people will even assume well, I don't seem to feel and think that God's against this, so therefore that maybe God's not, maybe God's okay with my lying or my cheating or whatever it may be. But Paul says there's not only wrath now, Paul tells us in other places that there's wrath to come. He's going to get into that in chapter 2. The Bible is clear. If we persist in our sin, any of us, and we do not repent, if we remain in our sin and choose rebellion and idolatry and immorality and deceit and gossip and slander and, yes, homosexuality or whatever sin it may be, there will be we will be found guilty on the judgment. And we will be punished for our sin for eternity. All sinners who do not experience forgiveness in Christ will spend eternity suffering the wrath of God. And that's a, that's a sad truth. And God's judgment now is a foretaste of judgment. But it doesn't have to be. That's the good news of Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. We're, Paul's warning us, so we'll warn ourselves and warn others. It doesn't have to be this way. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 11, Paul tells the church of Corinth, he says, Do you not know, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? In other words, those who persist in sin and unrighteousness, they're not going to heaven, is what Paul's saying. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's not giving a, the full list. He's just expressing, like, listen, if you persist in sin, if sin is your core identity, then, man, you're not going to inherit God's kingdom. But he says in verse 11, I love this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul is saying in Corinth, there were people there that he could say were, before they knew Christ, they were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves. They were greedy. They, 
They got drunk all the time. They were revilers, swindling people out of things. He was saying, there are people in your church that are serving as deacons and pastors and who are, are help, helping serve communion. Who That was you. You, you. you were in those sins. That was you, but you were washed. You were washed. Such were some of you. It's the past tense of your life. Jesus has cleansed you. And that's the good news of the gospel. He makes us right with God. He sets us apart even and changes us. He sanctifies us. He, he sets us apart, makes us his, and does this work of change in our heart to make us more like Christ. That's the good news of the Bible. That's the good news of the, of the gospel. If you're not yet, you too can be a worm, no matter your sin. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot wash. There is no one too far from grace. God's arm is not short so that he cannot save. God can do amazing things. And the church sometimes needs to repent of the sin of thinking people are too far gone. If you weren't too far gone, if I wasn't too far gone, there's nobody that you can imagine on planet Earth that's too far gone. Because dead is dead. And that's what we all were. We and our neighbors, no matter their sin, have the same thing. We need the same thing, Jesus. And if we want to reach our neighbors, we can't talk to them like they are some other kind of sinner. We all share the same boat. The boat's sinking, and Jesus is the only way out of the boat. Let me say this. What do we say? Since we had to, we spent a significant amount of time on this. What do we say to our homosexual neighbors? and those struggling with same-sex attraction. I would say, number one, you are loved. You're loved by God and by us. You're an image bearer of God. You are loved. Number two, you are not alone. We share the same core problem. I may not have all the same sins you do, but we have, we, we, it's, it's a core. We both are sinners, and we need Jesus. And you can be forgiven, just like I could be forgiven and transformed. The gospel of Jesus is for everybody. And four, Jesus is stronger and better than your sin or your temptation. He's stronger and better than my sins and my temptations. They need to hear a lot of what, what you need to hear, what I need to hear. That's what we say to all sinners. You're loved and you're not alone. You can be forgiven and transformed. And Jesus is stronger and better than your sin or your temptations that you face. So here's my question this morning. Number one, do you need to believe the gospel? Have you been transformed by the gospel? Have you been forgiven of your sin? Have you went from death to life? Is your life still characterized by sin and rebellion? Are you, are, is, is, heart, is God still displaced in your heart or does he reign supreme? Have you rested in the finished work of Jesus Christ to take your sin away? Have you believed that Jesus died for you in your place and rose again, given your life to him? And the second thing I'd ask you is, who's your do you have one yet? If you do, I'm just going to continue to encourage you to mark your card and place it downstairs on the table or you can hang it up for us. Just the first names of the people you're praying for with your one there at the top so we can partner with you in prayer when we walk by that wall and it represents to us the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. Nobody is too far gone that they can hear your voice and respond to the gospel of Jesus, right? We can repent, believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit moves on here. And so we 
It's not our job to try to figure out who God might save. God will save anyone.